Well, if you don't know me, my name's BJ, and it wouldn't be a Sunday with me up here without forgetting some detail. And I knew Mike was going to laugh, because he knows the detail, and Christian knows the detail. Uh, normally, if you've been with us for a while, um, normally you expect there to be like a, pre, a pre-sermon scripture reading. Um, well, I have one of those. I made one of those. I made slides for, for it, um, and I put in there um, Christian's name, but I did not call Christian. So, <laughs> so I'm going to read our free, free sermon scripture. This is just a passage for us to dwell on um, as we open up God's word. And it is, um, it's, it's, it's kind of, we kind of pick these passages, whoever's preaching, we kind of pick these passages for us as a reminder to us, uh, heart conditioning for us. But this is for the whole body. This is from Romans 2, 6 through 11. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jews and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. This is God's word for us. And uh, if you understand the meaning of that, you may not feel Greek, but what he means is Gentile. (laughs) And you are that. You're totally that. Uh, Barring any full-blooded Jews here that I'm not aware of. But that's all of us. That's an encouraging thing for us to be aware of. There's no favoritism. There's no favoritism. Thank you, Lord. Chapter, well, last week we left off with Jesus healing many. And he did this at the shores of uh, Gennesaret. He healed many and corrected the scribes. Corrected the scribes who were so hung up on the traditions, the traditions of the elders that they were missing the heart and will of God. Missing the heart and will of God himself by clinging to the traditions of the elders. In the process of doing that, the writer records that he declared all food to be clean. The power of God seen in Jesus has become hope to the hopeless and competition for the self-righteous. At this point, it seems as though there can, be, uh, there can no longer be any rest for Jesus. His connection to the power of God has become irresistible. Irresistible to the lowly in spirit and those who mourn. It's almost magnetic. Can't keep him away if he wanted to. As we'll see today, that's completely true. We're going to see that on display in our text this morning. Um, So we'll dive straight in. Uh, It's Mark chapter 7. If you can flip open to Mark chapter 7. We're going to go through um, verses 24 through 37, Mark chapter 7. As you're flipping there, I want to point out something. The, The gospel accounts... And we know this already, but I just want to remind us, the gospel accounts don't cover everything that Jesus did. In fact, it's written in 
in scripture that if they tried to record everything he did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. And so when we read these passages, this was intentionally selected by the writer out of all the things Jesus did. This was intentionally selected by the writer uh, for a very specific purpose. And today's passage, um, you might look at it and think this is one of the insignificant, relatively speaking, passages in the gospel. You look at it and it's not one of the famous ones that immediately comes to mind. In fact, as I was reading this, I was like, wow, the details of this story are so fuzzy to me. I'll say the first one. We're going to cover two stories. The second one's pretty memorable. The first one, though, the first one, though, seems almost just like a little nothing passage. Oh, Jesus cast another demon out. He did that a lot. Seems like nothing. And yet, and yet, and yet, Mark selected it. It was selected for the church for all time out of all the things Jesus did. And there's a reason for that. His word is so powerful and no story in it is insignificant. Verse 24, Mark chapter 7. He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. But he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. First location. Jesus traveled 50 miles. 50 miles to reach the region of Tyre. That's like walking from here to Sandpoint plus four more miles, according to Google Maps, which is probably mostly right. To Sandpoint. And I say walk advisedly. They didn't have, never mind cars, they didn't have bikes. Traveled on foot 50 miles to reach Tyre. Probably had a good reason to be there. That's not a trek you take lightly. That's a very long trek in the Middle Eastern desert. And so it seems almost odd that he didn't want to be noticed. Is Jesus trying to protect his host, this house that he's in, from the inevitable crowd? Is he trying not to upset the apple cart by entering a Gentile city? It's a Gentile city, by the way. I think it is more likely that Jesus is actually longing for a break. He went there for a purpose, and he's going to do that purpose. But I think he tried to get in unnoticed so that he could have a little break. Time to spend with the apostles and time to spend in prayer. And you have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself this question, especially if you've been with us through the gospel account thus far, and you remember what has happened up to this point. You have to ask yourself, 
What does it take to exhaust a man who withstood 40 days without food in the desert and no company except for evil himself? What does it take to exhaust a man like that? The only conclusion I can come to is this. Healing, serving, and caring for the lowly of spirit and those who mourn. That is exhausting. Add to that a 50-mile trek on foot. No wonder the Pharisees hate him. Think about it. No wonder the Pharisees hate him. It's not just the fact that he's gaining the love of the people. It's how he's doing it is how Jesus is gaining the love of the people. Jesus is setting a new standard. If people get too used to it, they're not going to be happy with anything else. Ah, insecurity. They either think that they can't do the same thing, Or perhaps more likely, they don't want to do the same thing that Jesus is doing. That's not what their heart's desire is. Their heart has desired after something else. Jesus is doing the job that no one else wanted to do. Now you can see this true in life. You can see it in politics, in the workplace, within families and churches. Setting the standard of hard work by doing what no one else wants to do will do one of two things. Either no one will want to be around you because then they might feel obligated to do the same. Or, and I think, I think this happens when there is recognition to be had, you will be hated for raising the standard. Avoided and ignored or hated for raising the standard. He's doing his ministry by doing things that no one else wants to do. And he's going to complete his work with something that no one else could do. That's how he's going to complete his work. His life, the things that no one else wanted to do, is the model that we as the church, are called to. The stuff that he was doing that the Pharisees hated him for, caring for people, pouring himself out, allowing just all the power and energy to flow out from him into those who were needy is what we are called to do. That's what the church's purpose is. I mean, the Great Commission, you could say. But that, according to Scripture, is our calling. It's our marching orders. So Jesus tries to sneak into a house in the region of Tyre. But he could not escape notice. He could not escape notice in a Gentile town 50 miles away from where he's doing his ministry. Word travels, even without the internet. Somehow, it got there. And he could not escape notice 50 miles away in, of all things, a Gentile town. 
And what's incredible is who finds him. A Gentile woman, born a Syrophoenician, it says. Probably butchering that word, but she's born from there. (laughs) This isn't a woman who has been raised with the promise of God's covenant. This isn't a town that has been raised with the promise of God's covenant. Nobody told this mother that one day a Messiah would come to bring hope to the world. Somehow, catch this, somehow, without a predetermined idea of what the Messiah would look like, she was able to recognize the power of hope for what it was. This wonderful mother came to the Lord with simple faith in two things. She had full faith in two things about this Jewish rabbi, this Messiah to the Jews. She had full faith in two things. One, that Jesus was the answer to her problem. She has a problem, and it's a devastating problem because she loves her child. And two, Jesus was good. That she could go to him because he was approachable and good, and she had faith enough in that to go to the house, fall at his feet. A deep faith in these two things, that Jesus is the answer and that Jesus is good, will lead a person to press in and pursue Lack of faith in one of these two things will cause you to pull back. But faith in these two things, that Jesus is the answer and that he's good, gives all the confidence in the world to press forward and pursue. If Jesus is the bread that your kid needs, you will go straight to the source and you won't accept any other bread. Verse 25 says that she immediately came and fell at his feet. There was no delay She didn't wait till her husband got home to see, you know, should we try this? Should we do this? She immediately, on her own, went straight to him and fell at his feet. If Jesus is good, you can have the confidence to stay at his feet without the fear of repercussions. If Jesus is good, you can stay at his feet without the fear of wrath fully expecting something good to happen. As we are called Christians, this kind of presence is what we're called to be. This passage this morning, I I love that we sang about the Lord's presence and your presence, Lord. There's nothing worth more. Nothing can compare. Scripture breathes so much life into worship. This is the presence that Jesus has, and this is the presence that we ourselves, as the church, are called to. As a side note, she fell at his feet. Now, where are they at? They're at someone's house, probably at a table. She falls at his feet and starts giving him her story. Letting Jesus into your house meant choosing to be in the company of the desperate. 
That was something, if you were going to host Jesus, you better be ready for that. Choosing to have Jesus in your house meant choosing to be in the company of the desperate. So at this point, we see a woman at the feet of Jesus explaining her story. This was a conversation that they would have had, including even um, what I consider to be a very, um, very touching, lighthearted detail. Little daughter. Did you pick that up? Little daughter. This is a detail that could only be accurately, accurately written down if she told them. And then they later recalled to mind when they were writing this down. Little daughter. So she had told Jesus her story and boldly asked Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. So here's, here's where the, the story takes a turn. Jesus' response is rather jarring. If you've read ahead, I think there's probably the people who are laughing right now, it's rather jarring. Look at Jesus' response with me, verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first. Okay, with you so far, good, love children. Good, good. Because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus? <laughs> what? Did you just call that mother a dog? By the way, if you're ever incredulous with Jesus, you're wrong. Uh, but, the, <laughs> but that's the response that immediately bubbles. I'm like, wait, what? The dogs throw to the dogs? This mother just poured her heart out at your feet for her daughter. And she's a Gentile. She never even had the promise you were going to show up. The Pharisees all spat at you, and she came to your feet. Intercede for her daughter. If you haven't heard this yet, I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did while I was unfolding it and learning it through many hours of commentaries and helpful notes and questions with Mike. Dog happened to be exactly what she was already used to being called by the Pharisees. They used the word dog in a very derogatory and vile term. As you can imagine, we have our own derogatory and vile term for dogs now. However, Jesus didn't use the same word that they would use. The direct translation of the word that Jesus used would be something along the lines of little doggy. Little doggy. It directly referred to a beloved house pet. You can picture all the warmth and care that you would have for your family dog, which is like a companion to many, so much so that people will put, you know, fur babies in their cars and stuff. I don't know if I'll go that far, but the warmth and love and care for the family pet. It's part of the household. Part of the household. 
Jesus took the edge off of the word. He, in one description, called to mind for any that were in the room. Who were in the room? Somebody say it. The apostles. Jesus' own followers, his disciples, his apostles, are in the room to hear this. And Jesus takes the edge off the word and in one description called to mind all that were in the room, how the religious leaders viewed her and simultaneously started to tear that wall down with warm gentleness. Beloved family dog. By the way, if God Almighty calls you a beloved family dog, you're in very good company. I'll sign up for that. Furthermore, his reply did something in her. It created the confidence to reply the way that she does in verse 28. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. When she went back home, where her daughter was, her daughter was not present to have the demon ripped out. And this woman had so much faith, she had the kind of faith that her daughter didn't have to be there. Does that remind you of anybody else in Scripture? I actually talked about this last time I spoke because Jesus marveled at the lack of faith in his own people from his own town, and he marveled at the faith of a Gentile centurion. The contrast was so stark. Well, here we are again, seeing a comparison to the centurion whose servant was away and he looked at Jesus and said, you don't need to come with me, say the word and it will be done for you because you are a master and I understand how these things work. And here's a woman, a Gentile woman showing the same kind of faith. Incredible. You might actually walk 50 miles for that. You may go, he says. What does that mean? No one was keeping her hostage. In fact, we know from the Gospel of Matthew that the room wanted her to leave. The room wanted her to leave. And he says, you may go. He was releasing her from her mission. You have accomplished what you set out to do for your little daughter, he's telling her. You've done it. You've accomplished it. Notice that the writer has knowledge of how she found her daughter that day. Perhaps this was not the last time that she spoke with Jesus or the apostles. She found her daughter lying in bed and the demon was gone. The writer knew the details. One more point on how Jesus spoke to his mother. We've got two stories we've got to get through. Notice, notice that he said, 
let the children be fed first. First. Not only first. That implies that there will be provision for others, but let the children be fed first. Surely the character of Jesus was on Paul's mind as he wrote these words in the book of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in the unrighteousness of God, for in it the unrighteousness of the right, wow, for in it the righteousness, we got there, of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You see, Paul was, uh, sorry, Jesus was giving marching orders. He had a will to fulfill. And he's not going to stop until it's done. And right there, the end of that story, the writer of Mark, that's all the writer wanted us to know about this 100-mile round-trip journey. Surely Jesus did more than that there. I actually don't know, but probably. And that's all that the writer wanted us to know about this 100-mile journey. Which seems crazy, or does it? It seems that the whole point of recording this event is found in the facts themselves. Mark puts in very little little detail, but each detail is very meaningful. Jesus was following the will of the Father. That will is very clear. He came as the promised Messiah, promised to the Jews. Despite the rejection by the leaders and his own hometown, Jesus will remain faithful to the messianic promise all the way up to the moment where they call for his head. He will be faithful to that calling all the way up to the moment they call for his head. All the while, Jesus knew that he would also be grafting in the Gentiles at some point. Who will also be redeemed by nothing other than faith itself. That is part of the commission that he will be giving to his apostles. It's going to be their journey. That's going to be their task. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. Right, well, Mark doesn't mess around, so we can't either. (laughs) So guess what? We're back in Galilee. Back in Galilee. Just like that, 50 miles later. Verse 31 Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Now this man surely hasn't heard of Jesus. That was kind of a dad joke. It was a little obscure. I'm new to this. My boy's only two. But (laughs) sure. Surely he hasn't heard of Jesus, or he cannot hear at all. It's a problem. (laughs) 
Being unable to speak would, yeah. <laughs> well, you've been d- a dad for a while. You got five, so a um, couple graduates. That's, that's well done. <laughs> Being unable to speak would also greatly hinder his ability to ask for help. This guy can't hear, and he can't speak well. He can speak kind of. His speech is muddled. So here again, we find a man brought to Jesus by loving friends and family. This man was brought to Jesus. He didn't go to Jesus on his own. He was brought there. It's not even clear if he knows exactly what's going on. Probably has some vague idea. I'm sure they were able to communicate something to him. But odds are he's pretty lost and clueless at this point. At this point, if you haven't heard this story, you might try to guess how Jesus will heal this very handicapped man. And you'd most certainly be wrong. (laughs) I'm going to say that if you're just guessing at how God's going to heal this man, you're almost definitely wrong if you've never heard this story. See, Jesus never seems to heal the same way twice. It's been so different each time, so much so, in fact, that if I were one of the apostles, I'm pretty sure I'd be betting on, like, what's he going to do this time? And I definitely would have got this one wrong, for sure. You'll see what I mean. Verse 33. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting... He touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephata, that is, be opened. Immediately, his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. Weird, really strange. And yet, I think if we dive into the details of this, we see something truly remarkable. For those of you who are new, you probably haven't realized this yet. If you've been around for a while, you know who I am. Like, you know the personalities of each pastor who gets up and teaches. You've got the guys who are, like, super analytical. You've got Mike, who's just, like, power preacher. And then you've got me, who's, like, I love narrative and heart of people and and connection. And that's just kind kind of what God's gifted me with. And I get really excited about this kind of stuff. I love digging into the details and understanding the hearts of the individuals in the moment. That's not all we should be hearing from teaching, but it's what I've been gifted with, so I lean into it. So we're going to really lean into that with this one. Really going to lean into that with this one. So let's read that again with some intentionality. So he took him away in private. Jesus, creator of the universe, God Almighty, sovereign over all, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, took him away in private. This man was deaf and unable to speak clearly. This man surely would have experienced crowded rooms from time to time in his life. And each time, he would have 
spent those moments in silent observation. And when I say silent observation, not just is he not speaking, he's not hearing. Everybody's saying. This man was somebody who was always hidden in plain sight. In the midst of a room, this man was invisible, completely invisible. When that is your condition, you don't think you know that you're not the most important person in the room. You know you're not. Nobody can tell you otherwise. They're just friends who are trying to cheer you up. But inside, you know you are not the most important person in the room. You have spent your days as a burden to the ones you love and invisible to everyone else. That's you. That's your experience. So he enters into the room, brought there, solitude with Jesus, the most important person to ever walk the earth, the Messiah himself, sees him. Pulls him into the private room so that he might communicate face to face with him. He looked deep into that man's eyes and spoke to him in the only way that this man could understand. With sight and with touch. Jesus touched him. Jesus touched the very things within this man that were broken. His ears, his tongue, and they were made new. Jesus looked at this man with understanding and compassion for his personhood, and he touched the very thing that this man has been struggling with his whole life. He was made new. And then he saw Jesus lean back. It says he looked up to heaven. And for this man, it was totally silent. He just sees this important rabbi just lean back and look up to heaven. He doesn't know it. But Jesus, with a deep sigh, interceded for this man. And then this man, in the total silence, he couldn't hear a pin drop because he couldn't hear. It was that silent. In total silence, he heard the voice of Jesus for the first time ever. Ephatha. Be opened.
I don't know how much empathy it takes to get into this man's world and see that, but I genuinely believe it would change us. Because that's love. And we love because he first loved us. This deep sigh that he did, that Jesus did, is found in other parts of Scripture. It's not a sigh of frustration. It is a sigh of intercession. What do I mean by that? Romans 8, 25 through 27 explains. This is the same word used. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Same word. Same word. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This man experienced that before the Spirit was doing it for all. He experienced it from Jesus himself. Jesus was interceding for this man, and it took effort. Personally, I love the way G. Campbell Morgan explains He says, Behold, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Behold, a man exercising a ministry full of healing power and elemental light. But never forget that this service was costly. It's costly. Jesus wasn't casually healing this man. In his very being, as he looked up to heaven, he strove for this man to the point of that inexpressible groan. This was effort. If you don't think we can pray that way, try it. We can pray for others that way. Paul says so, and he was inspired by God to say so. This man wasn't just seen and made new, though. He was also directly part of prophecy. You see, the word used here to describe the fact that this man couldn't speak is Mojilalan, Lalan, Mojilalan. Uh, Greek historians, please don't at me. Uh, <laughs> Mojilalan. <laughs> this word is only used once in the entirety of the New Testament. And there's good reason for that. Because it's old uh, as dirt. It is old. And you're like, well, this is <laughs> Bible times. Everything's old as dirt. To them, it was old as dirt. It was an ancient word to be used in their day. It'd be like asking someone if they would like two waffles, 
And they reply with, verily. <laughs> verily indeed, sir. Like, <laughs> now we might actually reply that way, but not, not seriously. Like, it's always a joke. And you heard the tone of my voice. Nobody ever says verily normally. That's like, you have a tone, you know? We would never write it that way. If we're going to write something serious, we wouldn't all of a sudden throw in a verily. So why was it written this way? Well, I think that we clearly find that answer in, one, in the one other place that this word is found. You see, this is found in the Old Testament in one place. And you say, Old Testament, you said it was a Greek word. Yes, the Pentateuch, one place. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the mojilalon, the deaf, unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Why do you think the writer put that in? Roughly 700 years before this man existed on earth, this was written that it would happen. 700 years the next time this poor man reads Isaiah, he's going to like freeze, turn pale. His stomach is going to turn in knots. Something beautiful is going to happen. He is going to sit there and experience a moment with the Father that will once again feel very personal, overwhelming, and eventually pure joy. This man was prophesied about 700 years before. That would make me sick to read that in a good way, like the good sick, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean, the good sick. <laughs> I think it would drain the blood from my body to read that in the good way. You know what I mean, like when the blood drains from the body in the good way. <laughs> you guys are tracking, you know what's up. <laughs> and then we conclude with Jesus still trying, still trying to keep things on the down low. Verse 36, he ordered them to tell no one. <laughs> but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. Not just said it, proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Were they quoting prophecy? Maybe. I don't know. But they say he has done everything well. Jesus, the person of Jesus, does everything well. 
These are very contrasting stories on the surface. Here's a woman who is broken in her heart. She has come to Jesus on her own. She has kneeled at his feet. Humility screaming forward out of this woman and she didn't complain that he called her a dog. Seems harsh, seems impersonal. And then here's this man who's never been important in his life and gets brought into a private room with Jesus in a face-to-face, personal touch. And they were both done very, very, very well. Because that's Jesus. He's that great. When you read these passages, it should, at least I hope, it inspires us to do things really well. And in order to do things really well, you have to know Jesus. And it's not just talking in the salvation, in the salvation sense, because you can be saved and then completely throw your life away. You read more about that in 1 Corinthians. You can build an entire house on the wrong foundation. The foundation will still be there in heaven, but your whole life burned away. We've been given the information and the opportunity to know Jesus and to live Jesus. To live it out. There are a few examples greater in my fairly short 33 years of existence that have inspired me more, and I'm going to embarrass a good friend today, that have inspired me more than Mary Hoffman. Very few people have inspired me more than Mary Hoffman. She'd probably be weirded out as this like young 33-year-old guy talking about how she inspires him. Like, That's weird. If, you, if you're not part of our prayer chain, Mary, um, she takes care of a very large household. You've probably heard people pray about her uh, this morning in prayer. Um, she takes care of a very large household. It's filled with um, people ranging from um, those who don't have a home, her grand, grandkids, uh, to those who are physically um, disabled, and her very own husband, Steve, who has been on dialysis for some time now and has decided to come off of dialysis. And every day, this woman gets up in the morning and she provides for a, a very large household. Not a lot of grandmas want to be doing that. Not a lot of grandmas want to be taking care of that many people in that kind of hardship. And Mary does this every day. And then she'll come in here and greet me with a smile. With a smile. Mary has represented to me a piece of Christ himself in a way that inspires me to want to have that same piece of Christ in myself. I want to be like that. I'm amazed at the kind of work and selfless love that she pours out. It's incredible to me. Mary is one of those people that Scripture talks about when he says, Do not grow weary in doing good. 
This is kind of out of the ordinary, and I wasn't sure if I was going to say it or not, because I actually don't know. But we put out a meal train for Mary. I don't know if it's filled or not. How, how do we access the meal train? Is that online? On Facebook. I want to, we're going we're gonna to sing some worship here. And actually, worship team, you can come on up. We're going to worship together as a body. I would like to challenge everyone in this room who has never done a meal train to bless this woman who is watching her husband fade away, this woman from our congregation who cares for her family so well. And I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to challenge you that if you haven't signed up for the meal train to pull out your phones in worship, to go to that Facebook Transform CDA, go to that Facebook link, and if that meal train's not full yet, let's fill it today. If you're not on that meal train yet, I challenge you, this is worship to God Almighty to take care of the orphans, the widows, those who are taking care of others. This is part of worship. If that's not full yet, let's take out our phones and let's fill that today in worship. We're going to pray. I'm going to read a passage from Galatians over you and the worship team. We're just going to dive straight into worship. So bow our heads with me, if you would. This is from Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if you don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Lord, I didn't plan on this, but I just want to lift up Mary to you today. Lord, I want to specifically ask that you provide for her um, miraculously in all ways, emotional, physical, financial. Pray that you would provide for her um, from within the body, that we would love on the family today that they would they would feel they would feel the love that should come from the house your house pray that you strengthen her and I, I pray that she's blessed today I don't know if she's if she's going to hear this message or not but I pray, pray that she's not embarrassed by it but rather blessed by it she's an example to all of us of your self-sacrifice we thank you for that woman and ask that you um Protect her household this week. That's all in your name. Amen.